What's up, y'all? You've tuned in to Pop Politics with me, your host, Dr. Monique Alicia Gamble. I'm an assistant professor, a screenwriter, and a photographer. And this show is a fusion of two things that I love to talk about, pop culture and politics. So let's get to it. What's up, what's up? Welcome to episode seven. Today's episode is all about true crime. Um, this is a, a topic that I am absolutely fascinated uh, with. And anytime anybody wants to talk true crime, I'm I'm game. I'm absolutely down. Uh, but over the years, I've noticed, I've consumed a lot of true crime content, um, podcasts and documentaries over the year. I'm, I'm like first subscriber for Discovery Plus so I can get more and more and more. Um, but there have been a lot of patterns that I've noticed um, emerge over the years that I've been watching, and that's kind of where we're going for today's discussion. But our journey will first start with a little bit of background information and some historical context, um, and then we'll get into some of those observations that I mentioned a second ago. All right. I don't know what you're drinking, but I told you I'm back on whiskey. I told you I would be. Uh, this is a whiskey and orange. And if you stick around, um, stick around. For how I'm vibing, I'll tell you what's in it. All right. As I mentioned, my favorite genre of podcasts and maybe storytelling generally is um, true crime. I am fascinated by the human capacity for violence. I am fascinated by how far people will go and do really brutal, really gruesome things um, and how low the bar is for people to do those things. So... Some of the podcasts that I listen to on a regular basis, uh, my favorite is Crime Junkie. Um, shout out to Ashley and Britt. Really, really, really great um, show. They have a weekly show and they do um, have a few extra merch and a few a- extra episodes that they put on their their Patreon, their paid uh, account monthly. I'm like I mentioned, I'm, I'm all the way in. So I'm on my low tier of Patreon. I pay like the little five dollars a month and get an extra episode every month, but it works. Um, so I can never get enough of, of these stories. They're absolutely fascinating to me. It is what it is. Um, the true crime community really regards um, the writer Truman Capote's work in Cold Blood as really sort of the origin and the foundation of the genre of true crime. Um, there's an earlier story, uh, the story of the, the death of the Black Dahlia, or the story of the Black Dahlia, really. Um, And this is a murder that occurs back in about like 1947, but the story about that isn't written for several years, several decades after that, which is, and the person who writes it is is actually quite interesting in and of itself. The relationship there is interesting in and of itself. Um, I became acquainted with, more acquainted with the story of the Black Dahlia and all of its really creepy and wild um tentacles through a podcast called root of evil when i listened to root of evil i think maybe last summer um any opportunity i had to talk about it i was talking about it because i'd never listened to no shit like that before i'd never heard a story like that before there's you know violence is one thing but all of the other mess of human relations that's that's in that one is is it's in my top tier of of things that are podcasts that are just like wow y'all wildin um so yeah 
Root of Evil is one that I, I, I loved. Crime Junkie is my favorite, which I listen to probably weekly and even go back and listen to some of the archived episodes. Uh, Southern Fried True Crime is another. Park Predators, Counterclock, I believe, is in its third season. And um, they've had some interesting stories that they've told uh, over those three seasons. In the Dark, um, the story of Curtis Flowers that's referenced in the first season, I believe it's the first season of In the Dark. I'll come back to that Um I have some points about that, some things that I learned, actually, as a political science professor from that episode. Um, Up and Vanished, uh, the story of uh, Tara Grinstead, or at least the first season, is about the missing beauty pageant queen uh, and high school teacher, woman named Tara Grinstead, who's from... um, I can't remember the city now, but she's from Georgia. And that one is hosted by Payne Lindsay, who did, so he does uh, Up and Vanished, and then he also did um, Atlanta Monster, the story about Wayne Williams, the famed um, child murderer from Atlanta, um, who was ultimately convicted of the the, ch- the child murders in Atlanta. Um, one that I don't actually rock with is... Uh, my favorite murder, which it's so weird because my favorite murder is the it's like usually top of true crime podcasts in almost every ranking that you'll see. Just crazy to me because those two they banter on for about thirty minutes, sometimes about forty five minutes, and then you get to the story, and that just doesn't work for me. Like I, let's get to it. I, I want the story. Uh, I want the 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 gruesome brutality as quickly as we can get to it. And that one just doesn't do it for me. But nonetheless, um, it's definitely one of the well-knowns, a very well-known podcast. In the true crime community, uh, the Alabama writer Truman Capote is really credited as being kind of the grandfather of this genre of storytelling. Um, Believe it or not, he and the other great author, Alabama author, Alabama being my home state, I just wanted to say that, um, but his bestie is Harper Lee, who wrote the classic To Kill a Mockingbird. The two of them decided to take a road trip to Kansas to investigate this story that Capote had discovered um, probably somewhere around 1959, 1960. And what had happened was there was a, a essentially a mass murder, a murder of a family uh, in a rural farm town in Kansas. Um, and the family was called, this was a rural part of Holcomb, Kansas. Uh, in 1959, the family was the... Uh, the clutters um, was four of them that were killed in, in 1959 and um, so around 59, 60 Capote and Harper Lee head off to Kansas to interview um, residents of this town to interview the people who did the investigations to find out more about what happened here uh, about six weeks after the murders the two men who were accused the two men who committed the murders were um, caught and then convicted and ultimately they were um, executed by the state of Kansas as it turns out to this day Truman Capote's book which was published in 1966 so it took him a full six years to do all of the research and to put his his work together um but to this day that book is the second highest selling work uh 
of the genre. The um, the one that takes the top is Vincent Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter, which is about the Manson family murders, which is written in the 1970s. So it's, you know, here you have something that, that from the late 1960s that stood the test of time um, in these stories. And I mean, I know that the true crime community is in fact a community with deep, deep roots. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me at all that that story, when it happened all those years ago, and you know the fact that it's four people and that it's a full family uh, that's murdered is, is certainly one that's gonna cause people to remember it and it's gonna cause people to, to wanna know what the hell happened, right? Um, for what it's worth, also, um, In Cold Blood is, a part of a um, the biopic um, that Philip Seymour Hoffman, the great late um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, won the Oscar for back in 2006. Um, really gives an amazing performance uh, in the role, and the the book, the movie is actually a really, really, really good one. So if you don't get a chance to listen to uh, any podcasts or read the books about it, definitely go back and and check out the biopic. It's really fantastic, and and um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, without question, deserved the Academy Award for that performance. Um, what I'm realizing, you know, as more true crime podcasts and more true crime stories really kind of uh, come to the forefront, there are a lot of patterns that that pop up. There are a lot of, of uh, commonalities that... Uh, occur across those stories and so what I've thought about over the years I think I've seen them but they really kind of started to coalesce into some real like significant points for me uh, over this last year but I think that true crime really exposes the biases and the weaknesses that are attached to policing and criminal justice um, and I, I feel like I, I should just say this uh, I am not an abolitionist. Uh, I am fully in favor, fully in favor of reimagining what policing means in our communities and what justice means, uh, what incarceration means. I'm fully on board uh, with reimagining what those things mean. I am not necessarily on board with abolishing um, a punishment system. Uh, I probably will take the take some daggers for that, but that's okay. I don't mind. I, I'm. I maintain there are some people that you cannot live peacefully among. Uh, and however it is that we fix that, I'm okay with it. But I maintain there are some people that we cannot live peacefully among uh, before they get that help. So um, I wanted to mention in reference to that, there's a, a really great quote. I think it's a great quote that comes from Tarantino's um, The Hateful Eight. And the quote comes from the hangman, John Ruth. And he says, you only need to hang mean bastards, but mean bastards you need to hang. Some people are mean bastards. Nonetheless, that part about um, true crime exposing biases and weaknesses in policing and criminal justice is one. Um, the ineptitude in investigations uh, is two. A, a pathology about, there exists a kind of pathology about uh, black and brown communities that we just sort of accept. And when I say we, I mean we in terms of a, a broader kind of global community, not not me, uh, and maybe not you. But there is a, a pathology that we sort of accept about black and brown communities. Oh, they are more violent. 
uh, or they are more prone to criminality. Um, they are less moral. Um, their moral fabric is, um, you know, not as strong as other folks. And these are stories that have been kind of told about certain communities for, you know, as long as, as we've known stories to be told. I'm here to tell you <laughs> that true crime suggests that is not true. <laughs> even if you didn't, you know, even if you didn't know, even if you didn't in your heart and soul question uh, that kind of bias, if you follow true crime, then you know that these things can't possibly be true. And so I'll, I'll reference uh, where some of these points are coming from as we go through this conversation. Um, also, so at the same time that I'm talking about, you know, pathology for certain communities, there's also a, a much quicker rush to give over compassion and sympathy um, for cases that include white folks. I mean, I just have to say it like that. One of the ones that I've been watching, uh, or a, a documentary, a true crime documentary that I watched over the weekend, was about a started with a missing woman, missing young woman case in Alabama, and it turned into a story of uh, incest and trafficking, all things that are happening in a small South Alabama town uh, among a community of folks who know each other and among a family within within a family and it was fascinating to me how we kind of built up so it's just about a i want to say it's about a five or a six part uh documentary series and for probably the first three episodes or so you know they're they're building the case they're giving us the foundation letting us know what the story is and you know what this world is that we're entering into and then once we find out just how dark the world that we're entering in is almost immediately there is sympathy for what these folks have gone through um there's sympathy for you know folks don't know any better and so they're victims too and i found that fascinating i found i found the 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 ability for for um folks in the video and the for producers and the other folks that were interviewed or you know gave comments for the documentary the speed at which they went from this is awful to the perpetrators are victims too i don't see that happening in communities that look like uh communities that are full of people who look like me or who are brown like me um and so that's another observation i don't know what number that was but uh, i hope you are keeping tabs uh next up is bias against girls and women um and this one cuts across, so there, there are levels to this. So you got bias against girls and women generally. Um, police officers, law enforcement can certainly, if it's a small town for sure, and you hear something bad that some guy is doing, if that guy is powerful within a town, or if that guy is like homies with people who are on uh, the police force, then there's more of a chance that that guy gets to live in that community untouched for longer. I'm not saying he won't get caught. I'm not saying that the, the officers won't ever investigate. They will. Um, but it's, it may take them longer and the investigation may not be as um, stringent if it was somebody who was a stranger, um, if it was someone who, if it was a woman, for example, that the, the community 
uh, perceives to be of high character or of high value. If you're dealing with a, a woman who may be poor, a woman who may be black, brown, a woman who is a sex worker, a woman who has a history of drug abuse, um, a woman who has a history or who has a reputation for being sexually liberated, women who fall in those categories are women who do not get valued the same way by um, law enforcement. Um, Crime Junkie actually does a pretty good job. And I, I, I don't know if, if other ones do. I, I've listened to Crime Junkie for a very long time now. And so I, I've noticed a pattern in the way that they work. Um, they, they're intentional about telling the stories of women in particular, um, women of color and of people who are from um, gender identities or sexual identities that are often marginalized. They're very intentional about telling those stories because they know, you know, as members of, of the true crime community, as crime junkies, they know that those stories are ones that don't always rise to the top and get sort of top billing on on keeping the public informed about what's happening. Um, and so that, that bias that exists in law enforcement for the types of victims is uh, also an interesting case. You see over and over and over again, whenever there's a young young woman or a young girl who goes missing, something befalls her. Um, parents are very reluctant to reference times in that young woman's past that might have been rocky. And if the young woman had ever been perceived as a runaway or if she'd ever run away, it's a wrap. It's a wrap. Like it's it's going to take longer if you get law enforcement to care in the same way. It's going to take longer for you to get. There. It's going to take longer for law enforcement to get there. And so there's that precious time that's lost uh, by law enforcement essentially saying, "Oh, well, she's a runaway." And so if she's a runaway, this it might just be that she's run away. Maybe she'll come back. You know. Meanwhile, she may very well be a runaway. That doesn't mean that this is a great situation. <laughs> doesn't mean that you know the the case shouldn't be investigated. The story shouldn't be investigated. But you see those patterns patterns emerge very, very often. Um, it's yeah, monsters in the sh- monster in the shadows is the the uh, the true crime documentary about the the family uh, and the girl in Alabama that I, I was watching over the weekends. Crazy, crazy. Um, let me tell you, you know what? I'll actually just go ahead and, and go there and let's talk a little bit about a little more specifically about. Um, these biases that exist or the the yeah biases and weaknesses weaknesses that exist when it comes to the ways that women are perceived so there's a uh, a, a series on netflix it was on netflix it's called the fall I love like stuff about like terrible murders and serial killers. Like as I'm talking through this episode, I'm like, am I okay? Uh, it's stars Jamie Dernan, I believe, the dude who's in Fifty Shades of Grey and all the Fifty Shades films, uh, and um, Gillian Anderson, my girl from uh, X Files. She says something. So there's a the. The fall is about these women who go missing and are found murdered. They're, you know, all successful women. They all uh, bear similarities to each other. Dark hair, uh, successful. They, the, the, the killer clearly has a type. Um, 
Gillian Anderson is a detective who comes from another area. I believe she comes from London to like Belfast to help the local department there investigate these crimes. And there's a point where the, her boss, who's like the, you know, chief of detectives, I don't know, whatever. Uh, but that guy is saying something like at one point he says, you know, these are these are innocent women and these innocent women have been harmed. And Gillian Anderson, Gillian Anderson, who plays a character named Stella, she makes a really great point uh, to rebut him. And she says, can we not basically can we not do that? Can we not divide women? She said, we've divided women into angels and virgins, um, vandals and vamps, something like that, like that. The the last part of it is a nice little razzle dazzle. Uh, but she's basically we've divided women into these innocent, not innocent, virgin, angel, like good, bad, oppositional identities for so long and it doesn't serve anybody because you know what if this this bar that we put up about what makes a woman innocent she could have you know not committed any kind of crime but her crime is being promiscuous or her crime is being mouthy uh her crime is being assertive and depending on who it is that is is telling the story, who it is that is managing the protection or managing um, the investigation of a particular kind of case, if that person perceives an individual uh, as not innocent, then maybe the the interest or the effort in pursuing that case just isn't as sharp. It isn't as acute. And so she, she makes that point of saying, you have a victim here. You have a, a person who was dead who is the victim of a crime. She didn't stab herself. Somebody else did this to her. And that's the only way that we should be pursuing justice or pursuing this case, not in determining who is innocent and who is who is innocent and who is not, because the bar is very, very low. And the bar is arbitrary, you know. What I find innocent because you have certain feelings about what it is that women do or what it is that women should do, you may not find that innocent. So let's not use that that term at all. It's great to see in a film or great to see on a television show. Um, and it's great to hear a character kind of reference that and make note of it. People don't do that in law enforcement. Uh, or, or it doesn't seem like folks do that in the law enforcement community. Those biases absolutely are allowed to stand. Um, so there are a couple of cases. Uh, Crime Junkie did a case on, did a, an episode on a case uh, about a woman named Alice Crimmins, um, and this is a case from like the 1960s, I believe. Crimmins is a woman who lives alone. She's married, but she has her her marriage is a one that's super strained. Um, she has two kids, so she wakes up like one day, one night, and finds that her her little boy and her little girl are missing from her home. Uh, turns out, as all of these true crime cases do, uh, shout out to Crime Junkie again because they always say it's never a mannequin. So if ever you're out and you're oh it looked like a mannequin, it's not. So don't investigate unless you're ready for that. Uh, but Crimmins wakes up to find that her, her kids are missing. And like I said, like all of these true crime cases ultimately do, uh, the kids are, are found dead some days later. Um, because Alice 
is I mentioned that she and her husband have a strained relationship and she basically does whatever she wants to do. Like she accepts dates from other men. Um, she dresses in a way that's provocative for the time. Um, and by that, I mean, she's in like tight clothes. Um, she's not a, a frumpy sort of grieving mother. She's grieving, but grieving in her own way. And so remember how I mentioned a second ago about innocence because of the way that she lived her life completely external to what was, what happened to her kids and the way that she dressed and the way that she showed up to, um, certain events or, you know, whenever, uh, the cops needed to question her, whenever there was like, um, something that she had to do at like a police station or whatever it was, whenever she showed up to those places, the way she showed up was what the cops understood as not being innocent. The way she presented herself, you know, it wasn't as someone who was deeply grieving loss. It wasn't as someone who looked the part deemed by them as someone who was grieving loss. And so this woman became their prime suspect, despite the fact that they had, um, didn't have evidence, you know, uh, that was consistent with what people were saying about her and what they believed about her and what her husband, um, was sort of saying about her. She became the prime suspect. And, um, the woman, I think she might've been tried like twice. Um, ultimately she ended up, I think she's still alive to this day and she's had to kind of go basically fall off the grid and uh, go somewhere else and try to live a, a peaceful life because no matter what happened, the way that she showed up to court, the way she showed up in the process of grieving her children was not perceived as sincere or authentic enough um, despite there not being evidence to the contrary. That's, I want to be clear about that. Like, you know, yeah, like you can definitely have someone who is a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde, you know what I'm saying? Like, she absolutely committed these murders and has shown up to be somebody completely different. That happens. Let me be clear about that. I'm not giving sympathy where it's not due here. But in this case, that wasn't that wasn't the case. Um, what really was driving the investigation and what was really driving the persecution of this woman is that she didn't show up as innocent. She didn't show up the way that people expected her to. Um, so there's, this is a white woman. This is a white woman in like the 50s and 60s who, you know, just was not a good enough victim. And she suffered as a result of that. Um, the next two people I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about from the perspective of the killer themselves. So there's Anthony Soul, who is regarded as the Cleveland Strangler, I believe. And then Lonnie David, Franken, Lonnie David Franklin Jr., who is called the Grim Reaper, Southern California. Soul, this story is more recent, because I believe he was captured uh, within the last 10 years, maybe, in the last 10, 15 years. Just like Lonnie Franklin, these are people who prayed on a particular community because to some degree they knew no one cared. And so in this case, I'm not just talking about, yes, it is a, 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 a black community, an urban black community. And so there's that part. And then the women who they preyed upon were women who were sex workers or women who were drug abusers. And 
like I mentioned before, so here's that that bias against certain kinds of women, certain kinds of women who are perceived as innocent, that keeps the investigation into murders that are running rampant in these communities. It keeps those investigations from happening altogether. Um, In the Grim Sleeper case, uh, this is the one in Southern California, Lonnie David Franklin Jr., this these murders happen over the course of a couple decades like he starts this in i want to say like the 1970s he doesn't get caught until i believe it's the 2000s somewhere in the 2000s and if you ever watch the the documentary you have um in the first first few minutes of it there are two guys who are interviewed and they're talking about Lonnie and they're just talking about how great a guy he is you know when when the cops came to arrest Lonnie you know we just we were like ain't no way you know this is this is the brother who uh worked on cars he was our friend he was a good guy right so this is this is how we talk how his friends talk about him meanwhile the same dude who is picking up women in the street and killing them sexually assaulting them and then killing them in his van um and we know that but they don't know that and they don't believe it when they hear the cops say this about their friend what's what's interesting about that is later on in the documentary one of these friends talks about having experiences where he objectifies women in the exact same way that Lonnie does you know he he's never um harmed anyone never you know murdered anyone so there let's let's draw that line there but you it's almost like you know this is um these guys are thick as thieves of course you don't recognize the the toxicity that exists in your friend because some of that toxicity exists in you too um and so again when i mentioned the 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 human capacity for violence that exists it's also fascinating how the extent to which friends and family um just won't believe what is before their eyes you know or or will protect um a predator a predator in a family or a predator in a community because they love them uh, or because they have a, a different relationship with that individual and they don't know that part of that individual. I, I, I find human beings to be just uh, the most interesting creatures in the, in the, the kinds of decisions that we make. Um, before I go on to another uh, example of, of these biases and weaknesses. I meant to mention earlier that some of this, some of my beliefs about human nature also come from um, the Western political philosopher, Thomas Hobbes. Uh, I don't, ultimately, I don't fall down where he does in terms of what, how it is that society should be governed. I don't fall into, uh, you know, I'm not a full proponent of, of where he, where he was on it, but I, I have thought a lot about it in terms of human nature. So Hobbes is, is one of the, the grandfathers, grandfathers of Western European uh, political philosophy. Essentially, the, the argument that he, he makes about human nature, about humankind, is that human beings are naturally warring in their natural environment. They will find conflict um, they may work together. They may work together. They may have a cooperative relationship together, but what's more likely is one that's competitive, and one where human beings will be harmful to each other. 
And so to abate this harmfulness, what you need is a very strong leader. And so, you know, leaders who rule by fear or force, um, you know, obviously they're not, they don't necessarily have to be kind, but what they're giving individuals within a society is a sense of security. So even if you're terrified of who your rulers are, the most, the, the, most prescient concern is safety. It is your security. And you cannot be safe, you cannot be secure among people in your community without a very, very strong ruler. Otherwise, the strong will take advantage of the weak. The strong will exploit the weak. The strong will harm the weak. And you need a force, perhaps an an authoritarian force that is stronger. I don't know that I agree with all of that. I don't agree with the, I know that I don't agree with this point about needing an authoritarian force to be stronger, but I do agree with the point about human beings not necessarily being benevolent in their natural environment. And this for me is, I think why I am drawn to true crime because you get to see that actually play out, you know? Um, And it's not like, At the same time, it's not like, you know, you don't see compassion and things like that play out as well. But this is different. You know, you might say that, oh, well, in order for a conflict to arise, you need something big. There, There needs to be some 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 significant harm done. And that's the reason this conflict has emerged. Nah, I don't have to be that at all. The bar is low bar is very very low it could be ten dollars it could be a bag of weed it could be because somebody looked at me funny it could be because it could be mistake (laughs) people people it could be because you're you're joking you wanted to scare somebody you you actually didn't want to harm somebody but you went to their door and shot through the door You, you you shot a 12 gauge shotgun through the door you shot an automatic weapon you sprayed a house with it. Your intention wasn't to, according to you, your intention wasn't to hurt anybody. You just wanted to scare them. You killed everybody in the house, man. <laughs> That's what I mean. The bar is low. The bar is low. Um, and so when you're, when you're dealing with true crime and when you're dealing with human capacity for, for violence, the repercussions of that are they're sprawling and they are enormous in ways that um kindness and benevolence aren't you know i in this i i I believe that kindness begets kindness kindness begets kindness uh violence can also beget violence or violence can also create an environment um that just quickly becomes uh unsafe or untrusting or, you know, so many other toxic things. So I wanted to make sure I got that point in about, um, about Thomas Hobbes. Let me talk a little bit more about, um, ineptitude and ineptitude in investigations a little bit. There's so many true crime stories like, like, uh, Ashley and Britt are, are so good for outrage. You know, <laughs> when you're listening to a story and they might say, did the medical examiner order or that the, the, the prosecutor ordered these reports from the medical examiner. Um, did the forensic pathologists or whoever, did they test the DNA? Um, and sometimes the answer to those things is like, is no, 
right? Which, which in and of itself, you're in a, in a time where you can test and you can come up with some sort of answers. Sometimes the answer to that question is no, or you may have, yeah, they tested it, but they tested it like two years later. Um, or the evidence that might've been directly related to this case somehow went missing. It was in the, the, you know, whatever the, the, the evidence storage lockup, whatever it is, it was there. And then when it was time for it to be used, uh, to exonerate someone or to, um, what is it? Inculpate someone to prove someone actually did a thing. Somehow it's missing. And there's no, there are no answers, you know, so maybe the, the evidence was supposed to be shipped off to some other place so that it could be tested. And, you know, the, the company or the lab or whatever it is, is waiting to receive the items and they never get there. So where's the evidence? What happened to it? Nobody knows. And so now that whatever that, however important that piece of evidence was to a particular case, it's gone. Nobody knows. Nobody's going to try to find it. Nobody's going to recoup it. And so, you know, whatever that meant to the story or whatever that meant to the case or the guilt or innocence of an individual or the justice that people are seeking. Yeah, you got to try again. Got to try something different. Um, in many cases, the the ineptitude is linked to those biases that I mentioned before. You know, uh, the fact that that police may wait or may, may be just sort of lackadaisical in terms of um, investigating um, a missing person's case if it's a young woman, if it's a young woman who's been a runaway, or if it's a young woman who has a history of uh, drug abuse or history of, of sex work. This is certainly not to say that all of them will, will behave the same way, um, but their the speed at which they get themselves involved the effort that they're willing to give for a particular victim or someone who's perceived to be a victim depending on their biases for that individual for those folks from whatever communities they're from can certainly you know result in ineptitude in investigations and and you these are you know I recognize too that you know I'm looking at at true crime cases, so I'm always looking at, uh, or very often looking at situations where everything went wrong. You know, you you may have you may have a victory in that the the perpetrator, the assailant, was caught and jailed or executed or whatever. You may see that as a victory, but a part of true crime is that there's like, you know, there are whole genres where. Everything that happened is a mystery. Where this person is is a mystery. What happened to them is a mystery. Um, and there are you know, years and years and years where this, the, the, the case is unsolved, the murder is unsolved. No, nobody has any justice related to it. So it's, it's I wanna give some room too for the fact that investigations are difficult. You know, I wanna give over some grace for law, uh, to law enforcement for that point at the same time like you know sometimes y'all y'all be wilding too like you you see information in front of you or you see a community that you don't value in the same way and so the the justice that that folks seek or the answers that people seek in in a particular case just they get lost um all right i talked about ineptitude pathology bias um 
I wanted to reference a couple cases uh, with a little bit more specificity. Not completely, because I kind of want you to to, uh, listen to some of these podcasts, because I want you to go on the journey that I went on. Let me talk a little bit about um, Root of Evil and Monster in the Shadows. Yeah, I'll talk about those two, because they're they're somewhat similar. Um, Root of Evil is a, a a podcast that starts out talking about um, the death of the the Black Dahlia, and let me tell you what her real name was. She this was a real woman. Elizabeth Short was her name. Born July 29th, nineteen twenty four, died January fifteenth, nineteen forty seven, and died in a really really gruesome way. It's really quite quite a story. Um, the podcast. The way that I came to the podcast was there's a a, a TV show um, starring Chris Pine about it. Uh, it was like a, a special series called I Am The Night. Uh, a young woman had been living in uh, a part of believe it's a part of Southern California. She she was a very, very light-skinned woman and she's living in a black neighborhood with a uh, a black woman, with a black mother, but she goes through all kinds of troubles because this is, you know, a segregated time and, and the fact that she's very, very light-skinned and she's living among all these black people and so there's, you know, you got all of these issues that are associated there. Um, the young woman ultimately finds, she's she lives with a mother who is kind of an alcoholic and she's somewhat abusive. Um, they have a, you know, it's a very strained relationship. The mother, the mother loves her, but the mother is, you can tell everything, something ain't right here. It's, there are lots of things that are wrong here. Uh, and so the young woman basically goes looking for answers to, to her life. And she finds a, a birth certificate and connects basically that, the information that she sees on her birth birth certificate is different from the information that her mother has given her. So she questions her mother about it. And ultimately that leads her to um, the Hodel family. The connection between this and the Black Dahlia is that it has been long suspected that the father, Hodel, might've been the person who murdered the Black Dahlia. And the reason that that's suspected as you go deeper into the family story. So as I said, this young woman found this family completely by mistake. And when she found them, it turned out that there's all kinds of mess associated with this family. Um, Hodel might've been both her father and her grandfather. And that may have been the reason that she was given away in the first place. She was never expected to find this family again and never expected to, to hear these stories again, but she did. The, 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 the woman who the I Am The Night story is about, it's her daughters that are the ones who are telling the stories on the podcast. And so this is not, you know, this isn't people who are removed from the family. These are people who are in the family who've now uh, contacted each other, who've now started to share stories about what their experiences were. You think you're talking about a case of mistaken identity or um, a case of like maybe snatched at birth or something like that. And so you thinking that this is where this true true crime story is going, but it turns into one that's much darker and much deeper. Um, the father, I can't remember, I want to remember his name now. Let me give you his name. 
George Hodel. That was his name. Um, so George Hodel was, he was a, a, a physician, and this is kind of the patriarch uh, of this family. And this is the person who I mentioned a second ago is, is the, the young woman who the uh, television series is about. George Hodel may be both her father and her grandfather, and she doesn't know that until she um, reaches out to them. Um, and over the course of the investigations into over, over the course of her finding out more about her family and talking to more members of the family, one of the sons, I believe this is one of George's sons, one of his younger sons. He's a, uh, an older man now, but he and he was a, um, a police officer with LAPD at one point. Uh, he ultimately wrote a story. Uh, some years later, I believe this is in like the 1990s, maybe, or the 2000s, um, basically wrote a book suggesting that George Hodel, his family member, the patriarch of his family, probably was um, the, the murderer of the Black Dahlia. Uh, but that's not even... There are no spoilers. That's that's not even the point of the, the podcast. It's, it's worth it um, to hear just what this young woman finds out and to, to hear how she just had no concept of all the things that her family had been involved in. Yeah, just, it, it, it went from zero to 60 so fast. Similarly, the Monster in the Shadows uh, documentary that I watched over the weekend, you start with, again, start with a, a, a missing girl uh, in late 2000s, early 2010s. Um, a, uh, uh, the girl was last seen with her uncle. Once the girl is reported missing, the police are like, hey, uncle, we want to talk to you. But the uncle decides that he's not going and he attempts to take his life. Um, his wife, instead of calling the police immediately or calling 911 immediately to get some help for her husband, she deletes text messages. The deletion of those text messages raise questions about, you know, wh where is this girl? Where is where's the, the young woman who went off with her uncle? And why, when we want to ask the uncle questions, did he kill himself or, or attempt to kill himself? And why, when he attempted to kill himself, did his wife not immediately call 911 to get him help, but instead delete the text messages? And so this story sprawls out into what becomes a incestuous trafficking ring for family members and children in this part of South Alabama. I'm bringing, I bring this one up because I, I mentioned a few minutes ago about the, the pathology that's always, that's very often attached to black and brown communities. There are so many people who run through small white communities, small uh, suburban, small rural white communities that inflict a serious amount of harm. There are women who go missing, men and women who go missing every year, who, who come up brutally harmed every year. And, and lots, in many cases, you know, five, six, seven, eight, that come from a particular community. And there is no widespread story um, about something that's happening in this community. Um, and so I'm not asking for, you know, I'm, I'm not asking for pathology to not be called out when it is in fact pathology. 
I'm just I'm more fascinated by the narratives. They they just become so much more obvious when you see this um, in true crime. You see how the narratives that are created about certain communities, um, that same kind of thing just doesn't happen in others. Yeah, you know, true crime exposes this in a really significant and very obvious way. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll, let me talk about Curtis Flowers real quick. Uh, Curtis Flowers is the, 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 the case against Curtis Flowers is the one that's chronicled in, I believe, season one of um, In the Dark. This brother was, he's just been released um, within the last year and a half, officially released without any strings attached. This brother was convicted uh, or was tried six times for um, murdering four people in a furniture store in Mississippi. Um, he was tried six times because for whatever reason, each of the previous convictions were not upheld. And the district attorney or the prosecutor in, in that case kept bringing the case back, kept bringing the charges back. Um, there's something to be said here about the racial dynamics that exist in Mississippi. I mean, you can't ignore those. The fact that it's a black man who is accused of murdering four white people in this part of Mississippi. Uh, the fact that the prosecutor does not get clean convictions and keeps bringing the case six times. And then... You know, you have this, the Bill of Rights that is meant to protect your civil liberties. Except when you have people in powerful positions who, are, who understand well how to manipulate and navigate those systems. And so in the case of Curtis Flowers, what the prosecutor often did and, and what prosecutors do when they're, uh, you know, Prosecutors or attorneys, uh, this, this can happen on either side. In this case, it was a prosecutor. Um, but he's looking at the uh, prospective jurors. Any jurors that he thinks are going to be sympathetic to his client are jurors that he's going to strike from the record. And so despite the fact that you, you hear about this Fifth Amendment to a speedy trial, to have a trial by a jury, to have a jury of your peers, and those of you who still think of the criminal justice system as being one that's unbiased and one that's that has justice fair justice as its pursuit this is where you see in places like jury selection um is where you see that perceived lack of bias begin to crumble because like i said before the you know the if a, a an attorney is looking for a juror that or an attorney is looking to strike prosecutor looking to strike a juror that may be sympathetic um, to the defendant, those terms sympathetic, how you define that, you know, for 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 some folks, if you got a black guy and you got a black woman on the jury. You might be thinking that, well, it's a black woman. Black women are going to be sympathetic to this black man. And so black women, as many black women as possible, we need to make sure that they don't end up on this jury. We would never, we're not calling that um, racial discrimination um, in the jury selection process. You're calling that kind of a prudent decision about who to determine is going to be a juror, but this racial discrimination in the jury selection process is exactly what it is. And so that that bias infects a case from early on. It infects a case 
almost at every level. You got, you know, bias in terms of sexual orientation, bias in terms of gender, bias in terms of race, in terms of class, all of those things um, impact the criminal justice system at every single level. From before you even interact with the criminal justice system in terms of what your community is like, the environment, is it is criminality more likely to occur in your particular community because of you know certain factors? And I don't. I'm not talking about race. Race. I'm talking about economics and development. Um, the 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 role that social society societal factors play in that part become just as apparent and just as impactful at every other stage of the game, from your interactions with people within your community, your interactions with police, and then your interactions with the, the broader uh, law enforcement community. And then if you happen to be imprisoned or convicted, there's a whole other series of things that are that are coming. But each of these things, I think, is, is really revealed in a significant way if you're following true crime. It's very, very hard uh, to miss it. It's hard to not see those things. Um... So if there are any other stories I want to tell you, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. And what I'll do instead is I'll link out to, in the show notes, I'll link out to a couple of the um, podcasts that I've been listening to um, and maybe even some of some of the most interesting episodes um, that I've seen. So check the show notes for that. And before I let y'all go, let me tell you how I'm vibing this week. Um, I said I'm having a whiskey and orange. And what's in this is uh, Maker's 46, um, a muddled orange wedge, and Grand Marnier. Now, yes, you can use orange juice, but it's not the same. The value that you get from the oils and the peel, all of that matters in this cocktail also put a little bit of bitters in there too um all of this matters in this cocktail it's a it's a pretty whiskey forward cocktail too so if you're not in the mood for that then um be mindful all right so that's what i'm drinking what am i watching what am i listening to this week um spent some time with Aaliyah's one in a million i love that album i love uh one in a million um i'm ready for the red album um I have had It's Whatever on repeat for like the last two weeks. <laughs> um, don't don't send me down the, the rabbit hole of, of It's Whatever, but I, I'm waiting for that album. I'm, I remember that one from right when I was getting ready to graduate. Uh, I wasn't getting ready to graduate college. I think I, this was like my junior year of college and, and you know, final year of her life. Um, so I'll, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the Rock the Boat video. Never forget everything that happened and how the, the news of Aaliyah's tragic end spread through um, my apartment complex uh, at Tuskegee University. We, I, my best friend and I lived together uh, in East Commons, and I, I think I heard it first and like ran out and was like, yo, this is what they're saying about Aaliyah, and it turned into a whole thing um, that we were consumed with for, for the next several days. Um, I do love that those of us who are around that time to like enjoy that music uh, did not let it die, you know, and it would have been easy to, to to not hear Aaliyah's music for 20 years and to just be like, oh, that was, you know, the music of my youth and to let it go. But um, I think there's something really, really cool about the fact that um, we wanted that. <laughs> we loved it. Uh, and and 
wanted more of her. And so I'm, I'm happy that we're getting more of her albums. We're getting um, better and easier access to her music. So that's exciting to me. I think that's it. I, I haven't been, there isn't anything that I, in particular that, I, that I'm binging and watching that I want to mention to you outside of the true crime documentaries and all of that stuff. Um, maybe something cooler will come up next time. But thank y'all for listening. Remember to um, follow Pop Politics Pod on Instagram. And you can also subscribe uh, to the YouTube feed. So obviously I'm, I'm doing video now and um, those will be up very, very soon. So make sure to stay in the loop. Go ahead and click the notification bell. <laughs> this is, I'm, I'm hearing uh, Judge uh, Lake from Paternity Court in my head. But yeah, subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, um, subscribe on Spotify, and follow the podcast on Instagram. Cool? All right. Thank you. I'll see y'all next time.